I just want to first, I want to thank you for um, hosting uh, Rusty, my husband and I. It's been a real honor. Um, I'm humbled by your reception, by your love. Um, honestly, I've never met, and I, I've never met a land filled with such sincerity. You know, when I go home and I, I talk to my daughters and I say, this is what Ireland is like, I'm going to say the people there were real. They loved, they, they, thank you, thank you. And I want to say especially thank you to Allison um, for um, allowing me to share tonight and just for um, showing sisterhood to me. And Pastor Ken has blessed us. And Jeannie, thank you for your prayers and your word of encouragement before I came up. That meant a lot. Um, a little bit about myself. Allison already explained that um, we have a large family. <laughs> we do. That's a large family. Um, we homeschool. Um, we're from Texas. And um, one thing I noticed when I, since being in um, the countryside of Ireland is how everything is so beautiful and comforting like I see a woolly sheep and you just want to hug it it seems like out of a movie it's so beautiful and in Texas we don't have that kind of um, gentleness we have rattlesnakes and wild boar and scorpions and um, there's a reason we wear cowboy boots there's a reason I'm going to let you talk on and just move your mic a tiny bit okay. nearer to you so Denise okay. can pick you up better So I was telling Kendra that we don't have any of these things here. The worst <laughs> we have to deal with is a wasp. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, I was praying and asking the Lord for um, a word of encouragement uh, for uh, my sisters here in Ireland. And I think that there's more that we have in common than we don't have in common. You know, when you have Jesus Christ as the focal point of your life, um, you find that you have sisters everywhere. Um, and, I, and I believe the Lord has given me um, a word of encouragement because I've walked through some things, as I'm sure you all have walked through some things. And I've heard since being here of the troubles, the troubles and Back in the United States, I don't think we understood just how difficult that was for you. We had heard things about it on the news, but until you're actually here, walking in your footsteps, you don't appreciate um, all that you've suffered recently. So I wanted to talk today about daily dying, about dying every day. Um, I'm going to read something from 2 Corinthians, um, but before I do, I want to share with you a private prayer. Has anybody ever had a secret prayer that you haven't shared with anybody, but it's there in your heart waiting to be birthed? It's just, it's private. It's between you and the Lord, and it burns in your heart like a fire, and you pray, whether it's for the soul of a child or... Um, a deliverance from something that, that's oppressing you. You just pray and you pray and you pray. And sometimes the prayers are even unbelievable. You're like, why have you put this in my heart to pray, Lord? Well, I had a prayer like that for many years, many years. And my prayer was, 
wanted to die for Christ. I wanted to die. When I go home to be with the Lord, I wanted to die for Christ. I wanted to make a stand for him. And I can't explain it other than it was a fire in my bosom. I would pray this regularly. I didn't tell my husband, Rusty. I didn't mention it to my mother. This was my private communication with the Lord. I wanted to die for him. And I had to pray this because it felt like it was going to burst out of my bosom. So 2 Corinthians says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And that's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. I'm going to focus in on the last verse, 12. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And I'm going to come back to that throughout my testimony. What does this Christian death look like? Is, is it a martyr's death? Is it our old woman that is being crucified? Is it a one-time experience? It could be all those things. But the death I want to focus on is a daily dying for our Lord. The kind of death that works in us to bring life to others. I'm going to turn now to Titus chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. In Titus chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 is probably familiar to um, many of us. Um, the Apostle Paul gives us some strong encouragement. He tells us, The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given too much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Whew, anybody else feeling that? That's a lot. Yes? And not only is it a lot, but it comes with the warning, you better do it or you're going to blaspheme the word of God. 
That's something that we should feel the weight of. It's not possible without the Holy Spirit. It's not possible. But praise be to God, he's left us with his spirit. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So we can overcome and keep the word of God. Um, Most women in America, they may read Titus 2. And I'm not speaking of my Christian sisters here. I'm just saying generally as a population. They may know of Titus 2 and even some in the church. They don't feel the weight of those words. They don't take it seriously. Um, In America, we have a generation that's grown up that treats the things of the Lord as light things playthings, amusements. We pick and choose what part of the Bible we want to obey as though it's a smorgasbord. Well, I think I like that because Jesus says he loves me, but over here where it says I have to die for him, we'll skip that chapter. We'll skip skip that verse. Um, We do in America treat it as a light thing. Um, In America, we've had abortion on demand now since 1973. And that's taught the women in America that um, they don't have to die for someone else. It's hardened our hearts. It's made us callous to the things of God and to his blessings. To his blessings. In fact, in America, children are seen as bookends to a perfect life. Even in the church in America. You get your boy... You get your girl, and together it makes your perfect life complete. That's not what God doesn't call our children bookends. He doesn't give them to us so that it satisfies some selfish desire that we may have. He says they're gifts from him. They're arrows to further his kingdom. They serve a gospel purpose. Um, In Titus 2, Paul's admonition demands that women, we women, have a conscientious, deliberate, holy attitude to being a wife and a mother, being a woman. Okay? In America, we don't treat motherhood. Even being a wife with uh, much conscious thought is just something we do. We fall in love, we get married, we have our kids. But we don't really um, consider how we're raising our children, how we're loving our husband. There's no, um, there's no conscientious, deliberate, holy attitude to the experience. It's an experience. It's part of being a woman. But it's not necessarily an expression of our faith. And there's a difference. Um, as Christians, we must treat being a wife, being a mother being a woman, as a vocation and a calling. And when we don't do that, we misrepresent the church to the world. Uh, My husband likes to say that um, he finds my love and my homemaking 
um, a place of rest. He likes to say that he feels nurtured, that when he goes out and he um, shares his faith in the world and fights his battles for Jesus, that when he comes home, he knows that I'll bind his wounds. I'll pray for him. I'll make our home as comfortable as I can because he's out doing something that he's called to do where I'm called to be at home, to give him a little comfort in this harsh world. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Okay? And by that I mean it's not easy being a stay-at-home mother. It's not easy being a wife, or if you are working, it's not easy to juggle it. It's very, very difficult. Um, but we're called to live a life of sacrifice, a life of daily dying. Um, I really love how this 18th century Bible comment, commentator um, commented on St. Paul's writings in Titus 2. Please hear me. This, I, I just think it expresses it so well. While St. Paul would never have the women of Christ forget their new and precious privileges in the present, their glorious hopes in the future, yet here on earth he would never let them desert or even for a moment forget their first and chiefest duties. Their work, let them remember, lay not abroad in the busy world. Their first duty was to make home life beautiful by the love of husband and child, that great love which ever teaches forgetfulness of self. I'm going to say it again one more time. Forgetfulness of self. Forgetfulness of self is dying daily. So then death is working in us, but life in you. So when we take on a sacrificial attitude and mindset, we're daily dying. But life is working in those around us. Life is working in our children. Life is working in our husband. Life is working in our church, in our community, as we daily die. Now, the instructions that Paul gives us in Titus 2, are these easy things? I don't think they're easy. You know, I know myself, I know my sin, I know my selfishness, I know my pride, I know my proclivities to sin. So I'm reading Titus 2, and it seems overwhelming. It seems impossible. And not only is it hard because of my sin, the world tells us to live for ourselves. Live for ourselves. That's what the the world tells us. The world tells us, take selfies. The world tells us, demand our rights. So as the world is telling us to live for ourselves, take selfies, demand our rights, the word, the word tells us, lay down our life. Take the form of a servant. Surrender our rights. So the world is telling us something. We have our own sin, and we're constantly being bombarded to do the opposite of what the word of God tells us. The world tells us, sacrifice our child for our life, abortion. Sacrifice the gifts of God, sacrifice a child for our life, okay? The word 
tells us, sacrifice our life for our child, daily dying, daily dying. Jesus um, said um, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 and 28, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, listen, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the opposite message we're getting from the world and the devil. That is not, we're told if we're not achieving a certain um, level of education, if we're not achieving a certain level of success, if we're not full in and and pursuing a career, if we're just being humble servants of God, somehow we're missing out. And really, Jesus himself did not come to to, um, be served but to serve. And we're supposed to be walking in his footsteps. So this is a countercultural mindset. Women, we must adopt the mindset of the Lord, the word of God, and reject the word, the, the world's whispers to us. Jesus, in Philippians 2, 7, it says, Jesus made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant. And then finally, I'm going to read one more scripture just as a way of encouragement to remind us of some things. Just a reminder. Luke chapter 22, verse 24 and 27 says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? It is not he who sits at the table. Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Again, Jesus is serving, serving, laying down his life, daily dying for us, and then he ultimately died on the cross for us. He's our example. Women have a special calling and, a, and, a, and honestly, a wonderful opportunity to follow Jesus to the cross. That's where he's calling us. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. He's inviting us all to follow him. The world is telling us, no, 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 no. Serve yourself. No, 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 no. Um, don't die. The world's saying, don't die. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. Die, die, die. And the world says, don't die. And that brings me back to um, my prayer that I had burning in my heart. A desire to die for my Lord. And I'll just be honest, that's kind of a naive prayer, right? Let's be honest. Naive prayer. But it was burning in my heart. I didn't even understand what I was praying. God, forgive me. I did not understand what I was praying, but it was burning in my heart. God, let me die for you. One day, God, let me die for you. 
this is where my testimony comes in. Don't you know God loves to answer prayers? <laughs> answer prayers. That's, he's so faithful to answer prayers. And I'm just going to ask you now for a measure of forgiveness if I cry. It's not, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, but it may happen. <laughs> um, we, we have a large family. And one of our sons was the same age as um, twin daughters. So when I married Rusty, he had 10. His wife had passed away. I had two little twins I was raising on my own. We met. God did a work. We married. We had number 13 together. But the wonderful thing is um, his youngest son and my twin daughters were the same age. So we had triplets. That's really what we had. We had triplets when I married, they were four years old. They were four years old. It was so cute. And our prayer, Rusty and my prayer, was that the Lord would unite us, would unite us as a family. And, of course, they're still grieving. The, the children, especially the elder, older children, are still grieving their mom. Rusty was still grieving his wife. He didn't have the freedom to really just mourn her because he was a dad of ten kids and he was in full-time ministry trying to homeschool he had to be strong for the world. So when we married, everybody was going through their, everybody was processing something. I remember one day shortly after um, we had started homeschool as a family all together, um, the twins, the girls, um, and Jeremiah, um, our youngest son, were talking in little four-year-old toddler talk. Isn't it cute? Don't you love listening to toddlers talk? It's adorable. That's so cute. And I'm like listening, and I'm not intruding because I'm really enjoying their conversation. And they have some crayons, and they're coloring. And then at a certain point, Jeremiah, like, puts his hands on the table and pushes away the crayons, and he's, like, looking at the twins. And then I noticed he had something in his hands. He was clutching something in his hands. And... um. Maranatha, one of our twins, said, So, my mummy is your mummy. And Jeremiah says, Yes. And then Sophia, the other twin, says, And your dad, and, and your daddy is my daddy. He's like, Yes. And then he opens up his hands, and he had a locket. And he opens up the locket, it springs open, and he says, and this is your mummy in heaven. See, kids have this ability to love, <laughs> just love. The, the younger ones just needed another mother. And they were, and Jeremiah was sharing his mother in heaven. And his mother had passed on from cancer. And it was very traumatic, naturally, to the whole family. Um, well, we'll fast forward a few years, and Jeremiah is... Um, almost 16, and he was a football player. And it's not your rugby, so you might think, well, that, <laughs> it's, not real it's not really real sports. It's not rugby. But in, in America, football is a big deal, especially in Texas. Oh, my. It, football, football is after church. <laughs> you, just, you, go, you go to your games. You go to your local games. You watch it. And it's a big family event. All the family comes. You pack a picnic. You cheer for your sons. Um, and all of our sons played football, and they were all very, very good. 
um, they won. They, they, they were all stars. All, all of the sons were all stars. And Jeremiah, being the youngest son, got pummeled all the time by his older brothers. He was learning how to juke and truck and, and throw the football before he even knew how to read and write. I mean, he was their punching bag, the poor guy. But it made him a tough little boy. And then now he's, he's ready to win like his older brothers win. And he was on a losing team. They, <laughs> they lost over and over and over again. Um, and finally, this one year they had a new coach, young coach, and he had brought them to the championship game. Play, they win. Jeremiah is a state champion, and um, he lets everybody know that one day he wants to play professional football. He wants to get married, and later on he wants to go in the ministry like his dad. Like he saw his life, he had vision for his life, and he had gotten saved, radically saved, the year before. God visited him. He'd grown up in a Christian home, but. Um, hadn't, he hadn't been possessed by the Lord yet. He hadn't been all sold out to serve him. And he, he, and he, he got saved. And, um, and a few, few months, well, probably, you know, honestly, like a couple of weeks after his 16th birthday. And, by the way, just because I think it's a cute part of his story, um, the girl that he'd had a crush on since he was a little boy likes him now. And he's thinking, I got to invite her to the prom. It's a big deal. And it seemed like this kid was having a good life. He was on his way. And I know I'm going to sound like a biased mother, but he was very handsome. Don't tell my sons, but of all my boys, he was like really, really handsome. He was. And the girls liked him because he was cute and he was friendly and funny. And, um, and one morning, no, it was, yeah. He comes into the kitchen, and he's rubbing his rib like this. He's got his T-shirt on. He's like, Mom, my rib's a little sore. Can you look at it? Well, you know, I'm thinking he plays football. He plays basketball. He wrestles with his brothers. So I lift up his T-shirt, and I feel, and I feel just a little grit under the skin, just a little grit. And I said, well, honey, wrap up your ribs. Stop playing sports. And he just laughed at me like, Mom, are you crazy? I stopped playing sports no <laughs> another month goes by and he comes back and he's like mom can you look my rib still hurts and so I check him again this time there's a marble under the skin and like as a mom you know your heart would be sinking now you know it's, it's there's something wrong it's been a month and now there's a marble and I also noticed he didn't have the coordination. He was kind of bumping into walls and stuff. Now, he was a funny kid. He'd bump into the couch and roll over and make his sisters laugh. But this was different. So I talked to Rusty, my husband, and he said, um, well, let's take him to the doctors. And we brought him, and they couldn't find anything. They did an x-ray. No, it's nothing. It's just he has pneumonia. It's nothing. And then one night, I heard moaning. And um, Rusty and I got up out of bed, and we found Jeremiah on the floor, just, just writhing in pain. Like he just was on the floor, and his nails were clutching the, the ground, and he was like crying out in pain. And apparently, for a number of weeks, he'd been suffering incredible back pain at night. We didn't know about it, so we took him back, and then. Um, we found out that he had bone cancer. 
which was very difficult and it was very sudden. And we did everything we could, everything we knew we could. And Rusty, being the man, the protector, the provider, having lost his wife prior to Jeremiah's um, diagnosis, he was not going to let his son die. So when the doctor called us into his consultation room and told us, your son has a 10% chance of life. That wasn't, Rusty didn't give up. So um, he took Jeremiah to Tijuana, Mexico, and it looked like he was improving. It looked like he would, he was going to be okay. And meanwhile, um, the bone cancer had taken away his ability to walk. So, we, you know, he couldn't play football. He couldn't even walk. And I should let you know, and I'm going to try to be quick about this, but Jeremiah had a heart for the unborn. He really would minister out at the abortion mill, and he would get up on the roof of our van with his microphone, and he'd hold his Bible, and he'd preach the Word of God to the women going in. And he would bring his other friends, and because he was popular, people would go. He had a bunch of football players that would go. His sisters would go. They'd worship. They'd pray. They'd give out um, pamphlets and helps, and he did this because he had a real burden for the unborn. Well, it got to be that Jeremiah became as helpless as a baby. He couldn't move. He couldn't. He, he had lost. He had been completely paralyzed from the waist down, and he was in danger of um, losing his ability to, like, to use his arms and well we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and it was clear God was saying no and um, as Rusty is thank you as Rusty is um, being the protector and pursuing any avenue possible to save our son's life it was clear. God was saying no, and that's, then our roles changed. So it went from protecting, defending, supporting to nurturing. And um, he eventually came home on hospice. And um, this, um, his journey from when we found out he had bone cancer to when the Lord took him home was only 22 weeks. You know, five and a half months. It was shorter than like, spring training and football season. And um, he lost everything. And the young lady that he was going to invite to the prom, it, of course, that didn't work out. And um, and I found out I found out from her mom that um, they had been tech messaging a lot when he was in the hospital. And of course, we have strict rules about that. You no, know, you ask the dad, you get the dad's permission. And but they they hadn't done that. And, um, they had told each other that they loved each other. So he's in love, you know, and there's nothing, he has no life to offer her, you know. So he had to be a man, even though he'd lost his legs. He had to die to himself and apologize to the dad and not have anything to do with that young lady he was in love with. Um, and that was hard. That wasn't necessarily our decision, but that was a decision that had been made, and he had to be a man about it. 
and he wanted to protect her because he did he did care about her. He wanted to protect her. And um, the Lord, when he was home on hospice, um, the bone cancer that had started in his rib that felt like little granulars of sand in 22 weeks had grown to be about this big. And it was an ulcerating tumor, which means it had, the, the cancer had come out of his, it had broken out of his flesh. And when I looked at him and I changed his bandages, I saw cancer. And it bled constantly. And it was a very gruesome, painful, painful way to die. But he loved Jesus. And every opportunity he could, he shared Christ. And he shared it with his friends. People were visiting him in the hospital. He shared it on social media. <laughs> and only God can bring life out of death. Make-A-Wish came to him and said, we're giving you a wish. You're dying. We're giving you a wish. His wish was to meet with the governor of the state of Texas <laughs> to speak on behalf of the unborn babies and abolish abortion. That was his dying wish. And he got to speak with the governor. And the governor said, your wish is granted, Jeremiah. We will abolish abortion in Texas. And then he had this following, people from all over the world. We were getting so much mail. <laughs> people, it was in the daily mirror. I mean, in other countries, in Argentina, like, it went everywhere. It really went viral, especially his conversation that we had videoed with the governor. He impacted lives through his death. And then on his deathbed, we gathered the family around him. And he was a fighter. He was a football player. He was a fighter. He didn't want to die. And he was struggling. We had um, this pulley that was over his bed. And he couldn't breathe. What, happened, what was happening with the cancer is that he was inflated. Like all of his organs were... He couldn't breathe, so anytime he needed a breath, he'd pull up on this um, bar and get a breath and come back down. It was torturous. It was supposed to be, you know, they said at a certain point that the dying process would be, you know, three days tops. It went on and on and on and on. And finally, Rusty said, don't you dare. He's talking to the family. Don't you help Jeremiah breathe. Don't put his hands up there. We have to let him die because we love him. It's prolonging his agony. Now, that's a man, right? A father could do that. A mother is like, no, I can't do that. That's why we, a father is so important. And at a certain point, Rusty looked at Jeremiah. He was on one side of Jeremiah, I was on the other. And, um, he was going in and out of consciousness. And at a certain point, he opened his eyes, and he, he barely had the strength to move his head to see his dad. And he saw his dad. And then he kind of flopped his head over, and he saw me. And um, I could see he had, like, okay, mom and dad are there, you know. And then Rusty said to him, Rusty said to him, Jeremiah, it's okay, son, you can go. He gave him more instruction as a dad. You can go, son. You can go. 
when we found out that Jeremiah had cancer, I had another prayer. I told you about my first prayer, right? I had a second prayer. I said, God, I can't carry this cancer for Jeremiah. I wish I could. How many mothers here would like to carry their children's burdens? You wish you could, but you can't. That was his burden to carry. But I said, God, would you please, it was a desperate prayer, it was a cry, please give me the strength to walk through this with him and be with him when he takes his last breath. Rusty says, you can go, son. You can go, Jeremiah. And I whispered, give your last breath to Jesus. You know what? He did. He breathed out, and he was gone. He was with our Savior. God answered that prayer. And then he showed me afterwards. He had answered my first prayer. I said, God, let me die for you, but I did not expect this death. This wasn't the death I had prayed for. But it was the death that I needed to become more like Christ, to have Christ's love come through me. And I'll just wrap it up with a word of encouragement, because I know this is probably can't be easy to hear. (laughs) There comes a time when our forgetfulness of self, the death working in us, is rewarded. Jeremiah had death working in him, and he's in this eternal reward now. He impacted so many people. So many people got saved through his willingness to suffer for his Savior. There comes a time when the king opens the book of remembrance and rewards you. So when you're daily dying, it's being noticed. God's taking note. It's being written in his book. Um, The book of Esther. Remember the book? That's a wonderful story about Esther and Mordecai. And Mordecai experienced that kind of daily dying as a parent. He took care of Esther when she lost both of her parents. He sacrificed for her. He cared for her. She'd become a daughter to him. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. He was giving his life to care for Esther. Then comes a time in his life as a parent. He'd adopted her. She's taken to the king's palace, placed in a harem. Oh my gosh, this righteous man is raising his daughter to be holy and she's placed in a harem and Mordecai instructs her not to reveal her identity not to reveal her family, her people I just want to ask you has the world taken your daughter? Has someone brought her to a harem? Has her beauty become her downfall? Is she being oppressed, abused? Is she keeping a secret? She can't tell. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Daily dying. Die for her. Every day. This is what Esther 2.11 says. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Do we have any pacing parents here? 
any mothers pacing the house of God for their child? Anybody pacing their daughter's bedroom, praying, praying for deliverance? Mordecai did. Be encouraged. Let death work in you as you pray and fast for your daughter. Let death work in you. Then Mordecai sat at the king's gate. He learned of a conspiracy. Now, conspiracies inside the palace of Persia were part of their history. It was kind of a a normal occurrence, okay? Later, this very king in the time of Esther would be ultimately murdered by a captain of the guard and a chamberlain. So it actually happened later on. Well, Mordecai discovers, he hears of the plan to um, assassinate the king. The two servants who guarded the king's bedroom door um, were conspiring to kill him. Um, Mordecai, even though a different man maybe would have said, oh, it's a pagan king, he's oppressing my people, I don't care if he dies. Mordecai was a righteous man. And he told the, the king and, um, of the plan, the plot, Um, Now, he did that probably at great expense to himself. There probably was a risk. If these people are assassinating the king, you think a man like Mordecai would be safe? A humble man like Mordecai? But again, so then death is working in us, but life in you. Mordecai chose death, possibly. Um, and then, of course, we know there was a larger plot where Haman wants to kill all the Jews, take revenge on the Jews because he hated the righteous Mordecai. And then Esther herself was chosen as queen, and through her appeal to the king, the Jews are saved. And again, with Esther, she died. She, she, she risked her life to approach the king in the court if he hadn't held out the golden scepter, the royal scepter, she wouldn't be alive. She risked her life. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Do you see how God works? He wants us to join him in that death. Okay? And she said, when Mordecai said, go to the king, she knew what was at stake. She said, if I perish, I perish. She knew it was against the law, but she did it. When Esther approached the king in the inner court, he extended his gold scepter. Um, She forgot herself, and life came. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. And last scripture, Revelation 20, 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. And what of Mordecai? Um, faithful Mordecai? The parent? He had taught Esther how to die. He had taught her how to daily die. And she was willing to risk her life to save her people. And then, because God is true... And faithful to his word, there came a night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. The king rewarded Mordecai for his service. As you die to yourself 
and serve your family. I pray the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, rewards you.